Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. I want to frame the beginning of this up this morning by saying that I love my brother. We, 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 we're, we're, this, is, this is a qualification of what's about to happen. We get on really, really well. He, uh, my, I've got two brothers. One of them I don't like. The other one, I, I, can, we, can we cut that? What? Carl, uh, my brother Carl, who a lot of you have met, uh, a pastor in Christchurch and part of leading a great church there. And, and we get on really, really well. Uh, he's one of my best friends in the whole world. I love the time I, I get to spend with him. And, but it hasn't always been like that. When we grew up, we, there, was, there was a lot of conflict in our household. Uh, I was the oldest brother, and as a result of being so awesome at everything, um, was better than him at everything. And there just this, this incredible rivalry between the two of us. We're only uh, 21, uh, 18 months apart in age, and, uh, and it was just, he was my... The, the kid I enjoyed playing with most. We spent hours and hours playing. We did a lot of backyard cricket. I'd make him bowl for hours at a time, uh, mostly because he could never get me out. But we, we loved those moments. And as much as we loved playing together, we fought like you wouldn't believe. And if anyone's got a couple of boys, you, you might know what I'm talking about. And um, I, I remember uh, this time. And it, it, things must have been really bad because Dad had had enough. And he, he called us boys out in the backyard and, and sent Mum away and said, right, you two, you're sorting it out. He said, uh, we're going to have a fight, the two of you. Uh, and look, Dave, you're the oldest boy, so the only rule that you need to do is you can't punch him in the head. Carl, you can do whatever you want. And so Dad was going to be the referee of this match, and, and we literally fronted up to each other and started swinging punches. Uh, it, it felt like it went on for about an hour. Reality is it was probably only a couple of minutes before I knocked him out. No, no, no. But we, we, we went, and at the end of it, we were absolutely, both of us and were bawling our eyes out. And I, look, I don't know that that was one of my dad's smartest parenting decisions he's ever made. I can't see myself doing that with my boys. I don't know if anyone else's parents. I, I've never read that in a book anywhere. I've never been Googling incredible parenting wisdom and, and seen that pop up. But for whatever reason, my, my brother and I had, had an immense amount of, of conflict going. We, we did work it out eventually after I left home. Uh, we became friends because we didn't have to see each other all the time. And then I, I look at my boys and actually things aren't a whole lot different. They love playing together, but boy, they can fight. And, and I'm trying to teach our kids that, that dobbing is just not cool. And because they just love trying to get the other one into trouble, and 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 it, I know every parent goes through this, and and I, I we I growl as hard at the kid that dobs as the kid that did something wrong, just so that they'll understand that I just don't want my kids to be like that, and and so that we're we're kind of working through this this conflict. In fact, things get so. Um, extreme at home sometimes we've got a breakfast bar and the kids will eat a few meals there and and there's one seat that's not quite as good as the other and that's because of the position and the angle to the tv okay parents are with me and and there's there's a fight over which kid sits in which seat and and my daughter is the strongest willed out of all of them and she will she'll get there really really early and sit in the, the good seat Right, well before breakfast has even begun, she's sitting there so that she can say, "I was there first. 
And, and so then the other two are at conflict over which of the other seats. And so I got to a point where I had to make a roster over who was sitting in what seat. I went, your kid one, your kid two, your kid three. Every meal it rotates. Problem solved. There are no arguments except now they're arguing over who sat where last. And I, I thought about this sibling rivalry and this conflict that exists. And I thought, what hope do my kids have when the very first two kids in the Bible had so much conflict that one killed the other. Actually, I think I'm doing pretty well as a parent. I've still got my two boys. I survived my childhood without killing my brother, although I would like to have on a numerous occasions. But there's this, this rivalry that, that takes place in, in lives. And as with, with boys in particular, I don't know, I, I don't have multiple girls. You, you, maybe you can tell me where the girls are. Uh, uh, it's the same, oh, girls are perfect. Okay, apparently. No, the, <laughs> Good answer, Mum. <laughs> There's they're just a house full of conflict. Last week we, we talked about a, a guy by the name of Abraham. And Abraham had, had a, a couple of sons. And, and one of those sons was a guy by the name of Isaac. And Isaac had a, a, some, some, uh, some kids as well. In fact, the, the Bible in uh, Genesis 28, uh, 29 talks about, somewhere, 25, talks about the fact that when his wife Rebecca was pregnant, the, the, the two kids were going for it from day one in the womb. It was so full on that she goes to God and goes, what is going on with this pregnancy? And God says to her, look, there's two nations inside of you and basically they're, they're at conflict with each other. One will be stronger than the other. The older will, be, will serve the younger. And so she's got, I mean, I, I don't know, if, if that's a normal pregnancy with twins, that it's that full on, you have to go to God and ask what's going on. But from the very beginning, these two kids were at conflict. In fact, they were competing so much that when Esau, who was born first, came out of the womb, Jacob, who came out second, was holding his ankle. Now, Leanne, is that normal when twins are born that one kid comes out holding? You, have you ever seen that? Have you ever heard of that? This is what was taking place. They were at it from the very beginning. And out comes Esau, pops out, because we know that babies are... Out it comes. The second kid... It, that's better. Comes out. There wasn't triplets. It was only two. Came out holding the ankle. Talk about brothers that are set up for warring from the very beginning. Like it just blows my mind that that, that would, would be the, the case. And as the, the two boys grow up, there's some interesting family dynamics happening. Now, again, as parents, I've been told you're not allowed to have favourites. Well, come on, parents. We all know we have our favourite kid, right? I was my mum's favourite, clearly. No, you're, you're lots of you shaking your head. The Bible says that Esau was loved by Isaac. Now, Esau, what the Bible says when he came out, was red and hairy. Okay, he was he was a, a, a man's man. He was the son that probably every father wants. He was the hunter gatherer type. He would go out and he would kill the wild animals and he'd bring them back for dad. It's the kind of son that that you you just love him. He's probably a little bit on the edge. You probably don't want your daughter to bring him home, but you'd love to have him as a son. And then there's Jacob, and the Bible says that Rebecca loved Jacob. Now Jacob is actually the complete opposite. Jacob is a mama's boy. Jacob is the kid that likes to sit at home cooking while his brother's out in the field exploring life. Now, there's nothing wrong with cooking. I like cooking. 
I, I, I love, uh, you know, my kitchen rules and Master Chef. All that. I love learning here and I love exploring new flavours and, and we, I, I enjoy food very passionately. But the Bible's drawing this contrast between these two guys. The, the loving life, love it to the, living it to the fullest kind of full on kid and the mama's boy. And, and I, I don't know what the dynamics would have been like when dad loves the oldest so much and mum loves the youngest. And I mean, they were only born, you know, a few seconds apart. In fact, you could say they were born together because they literally were joined. And what I've discovered, being an older brother and now having boys, is that the oldest child in the house, the oldest son in particular, really doesn't need a whole lot from his younger brother. He's pretty self-sufficient, enjoys his own time. In our family, Jordan is... Gets on really well and he'll happily sit down and read a book. He'll play on the computer for like 23 hours a day if we'll let him. He, he's, he's really self-sufficient. But the younger brother is just kind of like been his whole life looking up to this older boy. He gets to do everything first and gets to experience stuff and do what he can't do. And there's this kind of thing of, I want what he's got. I want to be around him. I want to enjoy time with him. I just want to do what he does. I want to be him. Now, my brother used to say that to me all the time. I just want to be you. You're so awesome. Well, he didn't say it with words, but you know, we know that that's what he was thinking. And nothing much has changed. There was this, there's this competitiveness and this, this conflict. Now, if you're a smart younger brother, when that day finally arrives, when your older brother comes to you and says, can I have that? You're going to pause in that moment. You're going to bask in the glory that that moment has finally arrived. My older brother is asking me for something that's mine. He wants what I've got. What a moment this is. And, and you'd pause and you'd just allow that comment just to sit there because it ain't going to happen for a long time again. This is the moment as the younger brother that you're waiting on. And then the older brother asks for something. And if you're a smart younger brother, not only are you going to bask in the glory of the moment, and stretch it out as long as you possibly can, you're going to go into negotiation. And you're going to aim for the very best thing that you can. You're going to ask yourself the question, what's the most special and valuable thing that he's got? I'm going to start there. Can I borrow your car? No, you can't borrow my car. Can I borrow your jacket? No, you can't borrow. Can we? And, and he's going to start at the top and he's going to work his way down until such time as the older brother's been worn out enough to just give in. Okay, you can have that. And the trade takes place. And the younger brother walks away feeling really good because he would have given it to him anyway, but he got something out of the deal. In the story of Jacob and Esau, pretty much this is exactly what takes place. Jacob has been, uh, sorry, yeah, Esau's been out hunting and he, he's, he's come back and the Bible says he was really, really hungry. Apparently he got hungry a lot. I, I, I kind of relate to that. He's, he's incredibly hungry and he walks into the house and mama's boy Jacob is standing there and he's been cooking all afternoon. He's got his penny on. He's just covered in flour and he's had a, he's just been loving it, creating all this stuff. And out of that enjoyment of what he was doing, he's created lentil stew. Oh, I don't know that I've ever been excited about lentil anything. Oh, I, I don't even know that lentil's a food. Fit for human consumption. Maybe if, if I was an animal, perhaps. 
Maybe that's what Esau used to feed the animals he wore. I don't know. But Jacob's got this lentil stew. And you know Esau's hungry when he says, give me the stew, I'm about to die. You'd have to be pretty hungry. You'd have to be on the verge of death to desire lentil stew. And Jacob, the smart younger brother, has paused in that moment. And he said, can you just say that one more time? I didn't quite hear it. Give me your stew. You, you want what? Give me your stew, I'm about to die. Now, not only is he pausing in that moment and enjoying it for what it's worth, he thinks, what's the most valuable thing that my older brother has? He His birthright. He says, sell me your birthright. And Esau, the Muppet, makes the worst trade in the history of the world and says, you can have my birthright for this bowl of stew. Now, what you've got to understand is this. In the culture of the time, birthright was an incredibly valuable thing. When the father would eventually die, that the oldest son with the birthright would get a double portion sometimes even triple. That means he would get two or three times more of the wealth of his father than the rest of the kids. Now, if you had a lot of siblings, that works out as a pretty good deal for you. That'd be better if you only had one because that's a whole lot more. But he instantly would have become the most wealthy person in his family in a moment. But more than just receiving the financial implications, there's another part of it that's just as important. In fact, often more important. And that is he got the title of the, as the head of the household. He became the person in the family that had the authority. So if there was a conflict amongst the family and things like that, or they had to make a, 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 an important decision, they would come and they'd sit at the feet of the head of the household and they would present their case, they'd explain what was going on and he'd make a decision. And that decision was binding. There was no, let's take a vote on this, let's do some negotiation. No, the head of the household made the decision. And Esau traded all of that away for a bowl of lentil stew. Lentil stew. Just, the, the, just saying that makes me feel queasy. He traded on, it's like, who would do that? Who would trade all of that away for lentil stew? And the more I think about it, the more I realise I would and you would if it was the right stew. See, Esau had this appetite. He had this appetite for something. And all he could think about in that moment was the lentil stew. His whole world was about the lentil stew right in that moment. And he was prepared to trade away his entire future for the moment. See, God's created each one of us with an appetite with desires inside us. And there's a tension that exists when we talk about appetites because the word that goes most closely with appetite is more. The tension is we want more. We've got good appetites and, and, and some bad appetites. That, you know, we, we, lots of us, have, we've got an appetite for security, for, for success, for love. We want those things. We want more of those things. But sometimes we want more of the wrong kind of things. Ladies, if you want some insight into the appetites of the, of the man in your world, I'm going to break it down real simple. He's only interested in three things. Food, sleep and sex. That's it. That's all there is. It's not rocket science. You're right. And, and, and in that moment, Esau's entire world was consumed with that thing that was in front of him. And we have the same issues. 
We have this bowl of stew that's presented before us, something that's there for us in this appetite. All we want in the moment is that thing. The problem for us and, and why this is an issue is sometimes our desire for those things, that, that, that bowl of stew is completely blown out of proportion. It's like the whole world is going to come to an end if I don't get that thing. Our, our body chemistry works against us in this thing. When we desire something and it starts ballooning, our brain starts telling us, you need this. You need this right now. If you get this, you're going to feel like an eight heading on towards a 10. And, and we, we go after this thing. And, and maybe it's the, the shiny red sports car that we've just seen as we were driving past. We should have been buying the family car, but we come home with the convertible. Because in that moment, we're like, I've got to have if that I'm going to be all, people are going to look at me as I drive past and be like, in fact there's a term for it buyer's remorse we think that if we have this thing we're going to feel like an eight and the reality is we wake up the next morning and feel like a three we feel guilt we feel shame we, we, we regret the choice we made and that's why a lot of contracts especially if you're buying houses and things have a cooling off period so you can realise I made an impulse buy, I got caught up in the heat of the moment and I shouldn't have done it. And you've got time to fix it. And if the bowl of stew is right, every one of us will trade our future for it. We'll all choose that feel-good moment instead of thinking about the future. And there's another factor in our brain that comes into play here and it's a thing called focalisation I'll explain it like this you're 18 years of age you're sitting there in a university lecture or maybe, maybe you're in your last year at school and a girl walks into the room everything else fades away and in that moment, all you see is this girl. Everything else blurs. You can still hear the birds singing. In fact, there weren't even birds before, but suddenly there are birds singing. There are butterflies floating around the room. Every colour that of the clothes that she's wearing suddenly becomes that much more intense. You can remember every single detail about her. You, you can't tell me a thing about what else took place that day, but that girl, in that moment, you can describe it. Now she doesn't know you exist, she'll never know you exist, and even if she did, she wouldn't care. But your world is consumed in that moment. And every guy that's ever been there knows exactly what I'm talking about. We fixate on the scene, we've got to have it. If I could just have that, that car or, or that girl or that opportunity or that thing that that person's left behind, I, I could make that mine, no one will notice, I won't see it. Or if I just get hold of this thing everything will be better. Man, I wish I could go back in time sometimes and undo a lot of the wrong choices I've made, but I wish I could have been there when Esau and Jacob are having this conversation and just say, just stop for a moment, guys. Jacob, I know this is a big deal for you. Your brother's asked for something that you've got, just, but this is a really big decision for him. Pause for a moment. And, and, and Jacob, just, just sit there, but just be quiet. Esau, come with me, we need to talk. What you don't understand, Esau, is that one day your wife is going to have 
12 sons. And those 12 sons are going to become a great nation. And that nation eventually will find itself in Egypt and, and they're going to be made slaves. But after 400 years, God will cause this baby called Moses to, to end up growing up in Pharaoh's household. And he's, he's going to deliver these people from slavery. And then one day this, this person will come into the world and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the very son of God and he's going to make a way for all men to be in relationship with him. He's, he's going to do for all people what happened with your grandfather Abraham when the covenant was made. And he's going to do that. And there's going to be this guy, Matthew, who's going to follow Jesus around. And Matthew's going to write the story of, of the life of Jesus. And at the very beginning of the story, it's going to say, he's the God of Abraham and he's the God of Isaac and he's the God of Esau. And Esau, if you make this decision and sell your birthright for this bowl of stew, it's going to say he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You're going to give it all up to your younger brother for the rest of your life. You're going to be written out of the story and he's going to be written in the story, but you're going to sell it for a bowl of stew. I reckon in that moment, Esau's going to start thinking about other things in his stomach. And actually for each one of us, we need to do the exact same thing when we're confronted with our bowl of stew. And when we leave here today, maybe this afternoon, maybe sometime this week, what I want you to do, if you're married, you can, you can do this together, is stop and ask this question. What do I want my future to look like? What do I want my family life to be like? What do I want to happen at work? What do I want God to do in my community? God, what do I want you to do in the lives of my kids? And start to frame those things up for yourself. Because if we're ever going to overcome our appetites, we need to reframe our future so that that becomes stronger for us than our present moment. Last year, a lot of you, if you've been around, know that I I had a, a kidney stone. And it was about six millimetres and it was nasty. And I was in a world of pain. And, and after I, I had that dealt with and I, I went and uh, had some further tests, uh, what you don't want to hear from uh, the surgeon is, um, look, this is beyond my expertise at the moment. I need to refer you to a specialist. So I, I go and see the specialist and I'm like asking him why, why I'm with him. And he says, well, the way I explain this is, um, he's the plumber, this, talking about the surgeon, I'm the master builder. And he said, my job is to make sure that you don't get this again and we deal with whatever was causing these. Now, there's about four things, chemicals in our body that create kidney stones. Well, I had elevated levels of three of them. So I was in a, a, a little bit of trouble. One of them was, was quite high. I, I had an issue with my calcium levels were, were really high and and he, he was sitting down, he says, well, there's a couple of drugs that we can prescribe to, to modify the calcium levels. And then he starts taking my, my medical history and he realises that I have arthritis and the medication I'm on for that means I can't take the medication that would stop the kidney stones coming back. He looks at me and he says, in the next five years, if we don't deal with this, there's a 50% chance that you'll have another kidney stone. I'm like, oh, no. He said, even if we do treat this, there's a 25% chance you'll have another one. I'm like, oh, 25% sounds a lot better to me than 50%. What do I got to do? And he says, well, we can't do drugs. We have to modify your diet. He says, you need to go and see a dietitian. So I go, okay. So I went to my GP and I got a referral and I walk in and my GP says, well, you're seeing a dietitian. Great. We'll deal with your weight while we're there. I'm like, thanks, mate. Awesome. So I go and sit down with the dietitian and he starts telling me all these things that I can't eat. Like Everything. Lentil soup was on the menu. Okay, it wasn't, but that would have been awesome if it was. If I'd asked, he probably would have put it on the menu. 
and, and I saw him just before Christmas and he says, you can't eat pies anymore. I know, right? I was like a three pie a week guy. Minimum. It was a bad week if I only managed to get three pies down. I'd open a bag of chips and the whole thing would go. We're not talking a little pair, we're talking a big pair. So chippies. I'm more of a steak, egg and chips kind of guy than a salad. I'm Esau, man. I am not Jacob. I'm telling you that. And so we started going through all the things that I couldn't eat and, and it was depressing and he started talking about the things I had to eat. And so, okay, I'm going to give it a go. And this is just before Christmas. He said, look, we're coming into Christmas. He said, you're going to put weight on before you see me again. Don't worry about it. He said, I'll put weight on. And I looked at him and he's a skinny little Chinese guy. And I said, fella, you've never put weight on in your entire life. Anyway, I, I, I started making the changes. And I have to be honest with you, I hated it. I was so hungry all the time. And he'd, he'd say, you can have three of these. And I'd need six of them just to feel like I'd eaten anything. And, and so I, I started making the changes and, and taking responsibility for it because I knew the outcome of making the wrong choices here. I'm highly likely to get a kidney stone again, and I don't want a kidney stone ever. I needed to reframe my future so that I could make the right choices when the pie was sitting in front of me. And I'm thankful to say I've lost over five or just on five kilos in the last little while, which is great. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to keep going. Because my future matters. And we need to reframe our futures so that we can refrain from making the wrong choices. There's a verse in Psalm 36 and verse 1. It says, Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God to restrain them. We all hear that voice. You need more. You need more of that. You want that. You need that. Your life will be so much better if you just do this. You're going to feel great about things if you just do that. And so often we don't feel like the eight, we feel like the three. And if we're going to not sell out for a bowl of lentil stew, we need to choose to reframe our future and put our appetites in the right places. Second part of the, the story about uh, Jacob and Esau is Jacob not only took his brother's birthright, he managed to trick his dad into giving him the blessing. And the blessing was something that for a few generations there they did. The, right on the deathbed, the father would bless the son, which is basically a guarantee of God's blessing. He would reaffirm the promises of God. And, and it's a great story, which I don't have time to go. If you can read it for yourself in, in Genesis. But he tricks his dad into thinking that it's Esau standing there. He put hair on his arms. Basically, they, they put the goat skin on his arms. So he felt like... Esau, and when Esau finds out that not only has my brother got my birthright, he's now got my blessing, he's decided that he's going to kill him. And so Jacob does what all smart younger brothers will do at that time, puts as much distance between himself and the older brother as possible. And he's heading to uh, his uncle Laban's place to, to find himself a wife. Good thing to do. He's on the way and one night he sees stops to rest. And this is, I'm reading from uh, Genesis chapter 28. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. Uh, verse 11. Jacob found a stone for a pillow and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from earth to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down. And at the top of the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the God, the Lord of your grandfather, Abraham, and the God of your father, Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I will give it to you and your descendants. 
Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will cover the land from the east to the west and north to the south. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I will be with you. I will protect you wherever you go. I will someday bring you safely back to this land. I will be with you constantly until I've finished giving you everything I've promised. Then Jacob woke up and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I wasn't even aware of it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the gateway to heaven. The next morning he got up very early. He took the stone he'd used as a pillow and set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil all over it. He named the place Bethel, house of God. Jacob had this incredible encounter with God at a place called Beth, which he would call Bethel. And there's this great line in it that I I want us to catch this morning. He says, surely God was doing something and I didn't even realise it. How often is God doing something around us and we don't even know he's at work? I reckon this has happened to me so often. I said, I get frustrated that things haven't worked out how I expected or, or that life has gone down a certain path, that things are happening in my world. I'm going, God, where are you in this? And God's busy at work and I haven't even noticed. And Jacob calls that place Bethel and declares it as the house of God. And Bible talks about us gathering together here at church being the house of God. This is God's house. And it was in God's house that Jacob had an encounter. And church, we need to be in a place to have an encounter with God. We need to be in a place for God to do something in our world, to break through into our world. Even when we don't see him, we want to put ourselves in a place to give him a chance to do something in our lives. I want to encourage you, make coming to church a priority, not just because I like to see the numbers and I get the report and I do my nice graphs, and but because I know that it makes a difference in your world when you're here. Statistics around the world are on the change from churches. It used to be that people on average attended church two out of three Sundays. These days, the average is closer to one out of three. And, and I guess this morning I'm preaching to the choir because you're here and fantastic, God bless you. But church is getting less and less and less on people's radar of things that are priorities in their life. There's more and more stuff that are happening on weekends. There's so many options and we're not choosing church all the time. I know one of the reasons I come to church is because I know that when I I worship and I I start lifting God's name up and I, I bring my attention and my focus to Him in that moment, He can speak to me. He can shift some things in my world. He can do something. Maybe you've got some needs in your life. Church is the place you wanna be. You wanna put yourself in God's house so that you can have an encounter with Him. Final part of the story this morning about Jacob is eventually he, he arrives at Laban's house and he, he, he sees this absolutely gorgeous girl and, and he falls in love with her and he's like, that's the one I want to marry. And he negotiates terms with Laban. I'll work for you seven years if I can marry your daughter. Now she must have been, in my language, a smoking hottie to be seven years of, of labour. Like I love Kerry. But I don't know that I'd have worked seven years for her. No, what I mean by that was I would have worked five times that amount because she's worth it. He agrees to me to, to work with her for the dad seven years. And then on the wedding night, he's excited and the wedding ceremony was awesome. And then they, they go off to the tent and I don't know what takes place in the tent. Something takes place and he wakes up the next morning and he looks and it's not Rachel. It's his sister Leah. Now, the Bible basically describes Leah as 
you know, she's got pretty eyes. In other words, that's code for, well, she's got a nice personality. You know, he's worked seven years, and I, I don't know what's taken place that night in that tent, but he didn't even recognise the fact that he'd been tricked. And, and he goes to Laban and he says, come on, man, seven years. And he says, well, we've got this custom. We always marry the older daughter off first. But I tell you what, give me another seven years and you can have Rachel. And at that point, I'm starting to go, I don't know, by then she'll be 14 years older than she was back then. And He agrees to work for another seven years. And, and this, there's this uh, great, you should read the story, it's kind of cool. And, and it goes on and he works that time and then he works a bit longer to, to start building up some livestock. And, and he'd left his own family on his own and now he's leaving Uncle Laban's and he's a very, very wealthy man. He's got uh, servants and all those animals and, and, and he decides he better go home. And he's heading home. And, and he, this is a long time later and he, he's worried about what, how he'll be received by his brother. And so they start getting close and, and one of his servants comes running up and says, Esau's coming with 400 soldiers, fighting men. And he's looking at his shepherds and his servants and his children and going, we can't take on 400 men. And he starts panicking. And, and what he does is he sends, there's a, there's a river and he sends his, his everything across the river and he's there on his own. And I can imagine the desperation in his heart. And he's, the, the last story I told talked about God saying, I'll protect you and I'll be with you and I'll bring you back to that place. And I can imagine him calling out to God and saying, God, you, you promised this. You promised you'd be here for me. You promised you'd do this in my life. And, and here's, here he is in this moment and, and the sun begins to set and he's there on his own. And, and in the darkness, he sees this, this shadow walking towards him. He realises there's a person coming towards him. If I was him in that moment, I'm freaking out. I'm thinking either Esau sent an assassin, something's taking place. And we don't know what happens, but in, in Genesis 32, it talks about the fact that he's, he begins wrestling with this man. There's this, this conflict that takes place and they're fighting. Man, they are going for it. And the Bible says they wrestled all night long. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I have wrestled, I wrestle with my kids all the time. We've got this thing and they come up and say, can I have a daddy trap? And, and I'm teach, trying to teach my boys how to control their strength and, and what they can and can't do. And, and so I'll, I'll wrap them up in my arms and legs and hold them in a place and I'll, I'll get them to start trying to fight their way out of it, to, to work out how they can manipulate themselves to get out of the daddy trap. And, and after, especially in the early days, after a few minutes, I'd, I'd kind of loosen an arm or something and, and let them go out. I know that, that if I didn't want them to move, there's no way they're getting out, but they've, they've got out of every single daddy trap. They've never been trapped. They've always escaped. And now it's a bit easier for Jordan. He's getting a bit stronger and he actually hurts me sometimes. Game's going to stop eventually. He'll take me down. But Jacob is wrestling with this man all night. And then the next morning, the man's like, you've got to let me go. Daylight is coming. And Jacob's like, I won't let you go until you bless me. Somewhere in the midst of this night, he's recognised that he's fighting with the man of God. And he's wrestling and he refuses to let him go. This is the, the kid that comes out holding the brother's ankle. This is the kid that is, is going to trick his brother and trick his father. He's, he, man, he wants to win. He has got this competitive nature. And eventually the man of God touches him in the hip and dislocates his hip and Jacob will walk with the limp for the rest of the night. And the man escapes and, and says to him, what, what's your name? And he says, well, I'm Jacob. And he says, no longer are you Jacob calling you Israel because you've contended with God and with man 
and overcome. And what I realised in that moment was that the, we don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt who that man is, but the experts talk about it being an incarnation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. That the Son of God is there and he's wrestled with them all night long and he gives them a blessing and reaffirms the promises of God. He could have won. In a heartbeat, he could have won because we know when he wanted to go, he just touched his hip and dislocated it, struck him on the hip. And I realised a few thousand years after that, another man would be pinned. Jesus Christ got nailed to the cross. He could have defeated the Roman army with the flick of a finger. He could have got down off that cross and wiped them all out. But he allowed himself to be pinned because the victory wasn't what he was after. He was after the hearts. It's the same thing. When this man was wrestling, the worship team can come join me, I'm nearly done. When the, the man is wrestling with God, so Jacob, sorry, is wrestling with the man of God, the man could have won, but he wasn't after the victory. It's after Jacob's heart. And sometimes I wonder why it seems like I have to contend with God and things. Well, I have to pray and pray and pray and keep praying where it seems like I don't get an answer where things haven't worked out. It's because... God wants us to contend with him. He wants us to wrestle with him. He wants us to, to long for that outcome, to, to desire the blessing. And how often do we give up halfway through the night when the blessing would have come in the morning? And I want to encourage you, church. I don't know what you're, you're going through right now. I don't know what battles you're facing. I don't know what struggles you're wanting to overcome. But God is asking us to contend with him. Will we ask and keep asking? Will we push for the breakthrough? Will we fight the man of God all night long to get our blessing and get our answer? Because it's not the victory God's after. It's our hearts. He wants you. He wants your heart. And this morning, during uh, we're going to sing a song in a minute. And what I want us to do is I, I'm going to open the front up for prayer and invite you to come this morning and, and respond in some way if you'd, you'd like us to pray with you this morning. The, the first area is maybe the, this whole appetites thing. Maybe there, there's a bowl of stew in front of you or you know that you often buy the bowl of stew and it's always going to cost us something down the line. Saying this morning, I want to reframe my future. I want to pursue the things of God. I want to have better outcomes for my life and for my family. Maybe you need some wisdom and some decisions or you need to ask God for strength to overcome in those things. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you this morning if just like Jacob when he's at that place he would call Bethel. You need an encounter from God this morning. You need to meet with Him. You need Him to do something in your life. Again, I don't know what you're facing in your world right now, but I know that my God has the power to make a difference in your life. I want to lay hands on you. I want to pray for you in the name of Jesus Christ that God will do a miracle in your life. Maybe this morning you're in the midst of that wrestle with God. Maybe you've been praying or believing for something to take place and you haven't seen your answer yet. I want to pray that you have strength to keep going, that you'll continue to push through to get your miracle, to get your blessing, to get your answer to prayer. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org.